CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have we have a lot to talk about. Um, this has been... It's funny, you know, it's, I, 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 it's, it's hard to say there's been any time in the last, I don't know, I was going to say six months, two years. I mean, when is the, when is the, when is the slow news period been? <laughs> but this, this period seems the, 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 the last two weeks has been particularly intense and, and, and jam packed with, with events. Now, some of that is because so much of what we have been, dealing with, you know, kind of that, that the country has been dealing with that we as, as reporters have been, you know, working with, uh, over the last seven or eight months has been things that are of great consequence with the new Biden administration, you know, the, the, the shots in arms and, uh, the push to get this, you know, mega omnibus spending bill through the Congress and the so far unsuccessful, pushes to uh, get some democracy protection legislation through Congress. Now, these are all things that are of huge, um, in some cases, even existential importance. And there, I mean, I'm actually not there talking about the democracy stuff, although that's existential in another way. I'm talking about the climate component of what we're calling an infrastructure bill. But But all of those things have been on a kind of a schedule. You know, we know they're very important, but they're kind of moving forward and we're seeing how they progress. And in the last 10 days, we have had this uh, blow up with the withdrawal, the final withdrawal from Afghanistan. And that is something that operates on a few different levels because you have, uh, you know, you have the story itself, the fall of the U.S.-backed government that, that, has been in place in one form or another for almost 20 years. This rush of a mix of U.S. nationals, third country nationals, Afghans who have, uh, you know, some dual passport holders, some who have visas to come to the United States because they work for the United States, others who are just trying to get out because they want to get out of the country. And there has been, I'm not sure I'd call them rumors, but the sort of the word got out, if you can get inside the airport, you're going to get flown out of the country. So you have all these things layering on top of each other. And then you have the, what I would call the unwinding of the American commitment in Afghanistan in the United States. We know that we've, we have, you know, we put it, put back in some troops to, to, to secure the airport. But we know that, that, that President Biden made the decision, we are out. We're completely out. We're not staying a little bit. We're not staying a little longer, all that kind of stuff. But what we have seen in the public response, and I've written about this uh, probably at, at too great a length on, on the site, 
is everybody kind of processing what is going on. And not just what is going on, but trying to make sense of it in the context of the last 20 years. And as I have argued, and then this is how I see a lot of the elite national press freak out over this, and what people sometimes call the foreign policy blob freak out at this. And I think a lot of that is that people are sort of blaming on Joe Biden or, or putting off on Joe Biden the fact that their denial over what was happening in Afghanistan in the, for the last 20 years. They've had to process that really quickly and it's been too much. So they have basically put it off on Joe Biden. And some observers have what I think is at least a consistent opin opinion, which is we just should have stayed. Country the size and wealth of the US can 10,000, 15,000 troops in another country in, you know, kind of low intensity warfare for forever. And we can afford it in money terms. I don't mean in that context, I don't mean I support it. It's not my kids dying over there, but just in a factual sense, the country can do it. We have done it. But you have a lot of other people who are not willing, either don't support that or not willing to publicly back that idea and say, well, yeah, yeah we, should, we, we couldn't stay there forever, but oh, not like this. There had to be a better way. And you have a lot of denial and deflection. Um, and over the last week or so, there's clearly a, there are tens of thousands of people being transported out of the country. You know, a week ago, we were hearing like, oh, we betrayed everybody. Everybody's abandoned. No one can get out. And, and it is a, a shame for America that will be studied until the end of time. And now we're at about, about just a week later, about 80,000 people have been evacuated from the country. And there are clearly more people, and we're going to hear, so we, we, uh, uh, Kate is going to tell us something that, she, you know, she has some um, personal exposure to this story, indirect personal exposure to the story, which is very interesting because it captures, I think, some, uh, not just human dimensions of this, but, you know, the kind of the logistical dimensions that, that transcend how we see this in political terms. Now, at the same time this is all going on, we had this kind of little mini blow up in Congress where you have these nine or I guess now 10 so-called moderate, um, moderate House Democrats who try to decouple the two bills that are this, you know, this kind of grand two bill extravaganza thing that the Democrats have kind of put everything um, onto. And it didn't work. And, and, and they got like a little a promise for a vote in September. And some people are saying they got something. I don't think they really got much. Well, we're going to talk about that. But here, here's, here's what I think is actually relevant here and is not just silliness. It is clear that Joe Biden's approval ratings in the country have taken a hit. Some of that is acute, an acute hit in response to just the pictures and the freak out over Afghanistan. And you can say, you know, maybe it's the reality of Afghanistan, whatever. That thing that has happened over the last 10 days. But if you look closely, it's actually preceded that. And I, I think it's pretty clear if you look at it, what is going on. Um, the country's mood turned in a pretty decisive way 
when it was clear that we weren't done with COVID, that we're kind of right back in it. And yes, if you're vaccinated, you're probably not going to end. You're you're almost certainly not going to end up dead. Probably not going to. You're almost very unlikely you'll end up in the hospital. All the great stuff about vaccines, but we're not done with this, and that has been kind of crushing for everybody. And now, is that Joe Biden's fault? No, but your president, you you rise and fall with with the reality that the country's in. So these are all things that you know. Uh, no crying in baseball. As the as the as the great movie says, uh, no one makes to be president. This is it's it's a hard job, and and um, life isn't fair. Where this becomes relevant, though, is that you've got this legislation moving through Congress, and strong presidents get their legislation through. Weak presidents have a hard time, and I don't mean that in a characterological sense. I mean how much power you have at a given moment, and these other news events. Some totally beyond uh, Biden's control. Others, you can, you know, it depends how you see the Afghanistan situation. They are they are leading to a deterioration of of just approval numbers, and that means that 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 is going to play into the jockeying and um, push and pull over whether this big bill, you know, two part bill, gets passed. So anyway, we're going to talk about all those things, and there is a lot to talk about, and a lot of um, there's a lot of different facts to talk about. There's a lot of different assumptions to talk about. There's a lot of um, people, I think, being pulled and feeling pulled in different directions because there's a lot there's a lot at stake on a lot of different fronts now. Now, before we get into that, let me just uh, briefly remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you. By Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, and you can experience the freshest way to cold brew the summer with Grady's Cold Brew Kit. The ultra-convenient all-in-one kit comes packed with Grady's famous New Orleans-style coffee blend of 100% Arabica beans and imported French chicory. There's no need for any equipment. Just add water to the reusable spigot pouch to brew 36 cups of bold, velvety smooth iced coffee. And the best part, no waiting in lines or paying coffee shop prices. Grady's pours directly from your fridge and costs less than a buck a cup. If you're ready to give it a try, get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, uh, Kate, co-host Kate, uh, let's start with talking about what happened in the house over the last like 72 hours. Explain the, give us the mechanics of what happened there. So, uh, this group of uh ultimately 10 centrists led by Josh Gottheimer uh, decided to, you know, put a, a line in the sand that they insisted that the bipartisan bill that already passed the Senate be passed in the House now, you know, immediately before the reconciliation package passes through the Senate. And as we know, for months, the strategy kind of established by both Biden and the congressional leadership was that these two things, these two pieces will move in tandem because that's the only surefire way to keep both the progressives and the moderates on board for both. Um, Now, a key part of that plan is now that the bipartisan deal passed the Senate for Nancy Pelosi to essentially sit on it until the Senate passes the reconciliation package to keep those two things moving together. Otherwise, the bipartisan bill could pass the House as well and just leave reconciliation 
alone, you know, drifting, still waiting to be crafted and passed, which would give, you know, moderates the ability to walk away from it even because they already got their preferred piece of legislation passed. Um, So that, you know, that's what she didn't want to happen. And then, you know, flurry of Politico-esque headlines about how, you know, Pelosi's leadership had taken a beating and these these Congress people were, you know, not to be messed with. They are sticking to their guns. And then they kind of had a flurry of negotiations the past few days, which ultimately emerged at the House did pass the budget resolution, which is, you know, the the top line that governs the reconciliation package. And then they passed essentially a promise to vote on the bipartisan deal already passed in the Senate by September 27th. And that's basically where things stand now, which is this weird situation where there's suddenly, you know, on the one hand, pressure, right, for the Senate to get through the reconciliation package by then if you want to keep the two-track system uh, intact. But then also, kind of the same political dynamic we're in now, which is that there's nothing to stop progressives from saying, well, we're not voting for the bipartisan deal until the reconciliation package gets here. So come September 27th, moderates say, hey, you promised we can vote on it now. Yeah, but progressives didn't promise anything. You know, they didn't promise to vote for it. In fact, they promised the opposite. We're not going to vote for it until we have the reconciliation package. So basically, it was just this kerfuffle that, you know, caused bad headlines, generated a ton of anger in the House Democratic Caucus, and not just from the AOC wing, kind of everybody, including people who are actually in much more vulnerable districts than the 10 uh, members who kind of spearheaded this uh, this protest movement thing. And then ultimately, I guess now you get this group getting to say, hey, we're, we're moderates. We almost derailed the whole Biden agenda for, you know, what reason? The, the reason they're publicly saying is American families can't possibly wait one more second to have these hard infrastructure improvements, which is so silly. I mean, we're talking, you know, building bridges, repaving roads, retrofitting houses, not to mention the money allotted to make those improvements in the bipartisan deal cannot be spent till October 1st. So that whole thing is ridiculous. Their clear motivation is that if the bipartisan deal is taken care of, they don't have to worry about that anymore. It's passed. Then that gives moderates so much more leverage on reconciliation because they can threaten to walk away at any time if, you know, it doesn't get shrunk or things don't get taken out or, you know, for Gottheimer, the the salt tax for his wealthy constituents. You know, that was clearly the goal. Um, And I think we're basically left in a place where they really didn't get much except manage to piss off a very diverse group of people. Yeah. So this is... uh this is kind of my question here. It, it, it seems like, you know, they wanted to, you have this big cross party agreement. You guys want this thing and we're going to support you on that, you know, or rephrase that, you know, the, the, the sort of moderate centrists want X and progressives are saying, we will support you on that. You got to support us on this thing we want or vice versa you can say you know you you can you can put either side in the kind of the governing hand there there's sort of this again a big cross-party agreement we're all going to do this together and and the deal is that we both get the thing that is that is the sort of the sine qua non for us and uh 
Gottheimer and, and, and crew had, as you say, this kind of absurd notional argument like, oh, it's the bipartisan deal so, so important. We can't wait like a day. But that's that is ludicrous because these are all this isn't like checks in people's bank accounts. It's it's road projects. So clearly days or weeks are irrelevant for that. What they really and it's funny, I saw one of their kind of support, press supporters kind of arguing the case that they really needed to decouple it so they didn't get sort of tarred with, you know, the AOC agenda, as 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 they put it. So on the one hand, I think part of the problem here is is that this is not the AOC agenda. This is the big overall thing has overwhelming support among Democrats in uh, in Congress in both bodies. Um, you know, by one definition, it has unanimous, it has, uh, you know, um, unanimous support in the Senate. Now, obviously, some of that support is because of this kind of grand bargain deal that I'm talking about. In any case, they seem to want to say that they're tanking the whole thing without kind of admitting they want to tank the whole thing. But I'm also not sure they even want to tank the whole thing. So, and, and their own lack of clarity about what they're even trying to do. I think led to them not being able to negotiate that well because you know with 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 I think everybody knows we're still going to have this thing in the Senate where Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema say 3.5 trillion can't can't mo- I can't be a moderate and and support that I'm going to have to shave some money off and and I think you know pessimists think maybe it'll go all the way down to 3 trillion I suspect it'll be more like 3.4 trillion but these are numbers and you can you know push and pull and and where you're going to get but they didn't have that because even what they wanted is not really clear and and so it's hard to it's hard to know how you negotiate from there right you know so the whole thing was weird. The whole thing is so weird because the central dynamic is either both of these bills will pass or neither will. You know, that's kind of been the operating idea since they started on this project. And then the idea that these members are going to, you know, it can't be overstated. I mean, tank the entire Biden agenda. This is unless the midterms go really differently than everything suggests they will, this is going to be the Democrats' last meaningful chance to legislate for potentially years. And the idea that these people are willing to play this very high-stakes game of political chicken for exactly what you're saying, no clear you know, motivation. It's really, it's hard to tell what they were trying to extract from this. Well, I think, I think what they were trying to extract, they wanted to come out of this as suddenly Josh Gottheimer is the Joe Manchin of the right. House. Exactly. That everybody's like kind of waiting on his, you know, kind of, uh, you know, waiting on his every word and he's going on meet the press. Mm-hmm. And suddenly he is every everybody who wants to feel like the Democrats have have are just, you know, it's too much. It's kind of too much. I need to kind of at least guffaw or not guffaw. Um, you know, I, I need to at least preen a little about stuff that's, that that's him but but the dynamics here are different because the house is different and um it's just different on a bunch of different levels and and so they kind of couldn't do that and they, i think they ended up as you say kind of pissing off a lot of people and and the other point you know if if 
I mean, I have my whole my my own whole beef here, uh, other beef here, which I think Mark Penn is actually behind a lot of this because Josh Gottheimer is kind of his, you know, has been his sort of like protege for years and years and years, and it's uh, you know the no labels group, which is which is funding ads on behalf of these guys, is is run by Mark Penn's wife. You know, I know we're you know kind of like oh everybody's got the no. I mean, come on, <laughs> these people are all kind of buds. They've been they've been friends for twenty five years. In any case, as you say, kind of like, yeah, they could say, hey, we're not voting for the reconciliation bill. It's just 3.52. That's not nothing I can ever support. And but as as you put it, Kate, then fine, have have the vote on the bipartisan bill and it'll get. I would estimate it get about 75 votes in the House. Because you'd have certain people who would not a lot of I mean, every day, like all but like 10 Democrats, I think would be really fucking pissed off. But not all of them would quite be willing to vote no. But certainly, everyone in the in the Progressive Caucus would vote no. It, right. It's just it's just like it would just be a bloodbath. I mean, take everything that is already working against the Democrats now in 2022, and like completely demoralize all Democratic partisans. It would just be like I mean, just just light the whole party on fire, basically. Yeah, in that way, that's what I've been thinking about is I agree with you that I think Josh Gottheimer really wants to fancy himself the mansion of the house, but he's so obviously the cinema of the house and that there's no like electoral reason really to be the way that well, there's he is. There's a little bit. There's a little bit. I'm not saying it's that a, there's not yeah. an electoral reason for him not to behave like AOC. Just the reason that there's, you know, there's a reason for cinema not to behave like a, a senator from California. However, I think that means staking out ideological independence when you have to do so. I think that having these fights on process that most people don't really know what's going on and that results in just a flurry of Democrats and disarray headlines is so silly. And so kind of, it, it just seems like the goal with both of the way that they operate is like, how can I really, really, really piss off Democrats? And then they do that. And that is supposed to somehow translate into, and that will, you know, give me more bona fides with independents and Republicans. When I think the clear reality of this, the situation is Republicans love that they do this. I mean, it's what they like to see, right? Like causing chaos within the opposing party. But then the ultimate result is you just piss off Democrats so much and don't really gain much ground with independence because you're not standing for anything. You're just deciding to selectively be a troll and make things harder for your own party. Just for our our listeners, just to, to, just to give us a little factual background, Gottheimer is from a, a district in northern New Jersey that until fairly recently was a, was held by a republican um it's you know very affluent it's just a, it, for for new jersey it's a very conservative district or a fairly conservative district uh he finally flipped it two or three cycles ago um it's basically it's still kind of a swing district right and and i suspect it's it's sort of trended more democratic over the last two or three cycles since it's it's um to the extent that it is republican it is largely anchored in sort of uh you know affluent suburbs that have trended towards democrats in any case the point being, he's not from a solid Democratic district. So Kate and I are both saying that it is entirely understandable that he would want to get out there. I'm not just AOC. I'm not, you know, I'm not just a, a rubber stamp for AOC and Pelosi and all that kind of stuff. Um, but to your point, I think that's exactly right. What what they did is they did this procedural thing that basically no one who's not deep, deep, deep into this would even understand what the hell they're talking about. And the, you know, if he would have said, hey, 
I need the salt tax thing dealt with. That's my condition. Not voting for reconciliation if I don't get that. Well, okay, then like, got it. We know kind of what we need to do to kind of get you on board. But what they actually did was just say, okay, we want to light the whole grand party compromise on fire. (laughs) What do you think about that's what we need? And so for Democrats, we're like, well, that's a tough one. Yeah, Lighting ourselves on fire. (laughs) Like, okay, that's hard for us to, that's not really a kind of a, um, you know, in the incremental thing, you know, we're going to half light ourselves on fire, full light ourselves on fire. So yeah, it was a, at some level, I don't think they're that shrewd. Yep. You know, it just wasn't really, um, it wasn't really well played, but, but this is the, you know, we're going to have a bunch of these things going well, a bunch of these things in the sense of we're going to have a bunch of stuff over the next month or two where it suddenly seems like everything's coming apart, where you're going to see, at least on the margins, something that things that a lot of people support are going to go on, are going to go by the wayside. And I'm pretty confident at the end of it, you're going to end up pretty much with the whole thing, but there's going to be drama on the way. There is. And just steal yourself for it. And there's going to be more drama if Joe Biden's approval numbers stay, you know, below 50%. Because, you know, the, the parties, uh, parties with the president in office basically rise or fall with the popularity of the president. That's, that's life. Pretty so. much best way, in my opinion, to uh, ensure that that number stays low is to keep having these ridiculous, silly, self-damaging, egotistical fights because you want your name in the headlines at Josh Gottheimer. Yeah, well, that's, uh, he is, he is, you know, the thing is, is that at, at a minimum, every Democrat in the country should commit to if and when another, well, you know, obviously everything, nothing is forever. You know, whenever there's another, if a Senate seat comes up and you see Josh Gottheimer wants to like... <laughs> send to whoever his opponent is. It's <laughs> yeah. you need to you need to remember to think about the future point in which you can punish Josh Gottheimer. But obviously you don't necessarily want to do it now because you do need that seat, right? So it's not like you're like, "Oh, we're going to primary." Well, you know, what is that going to get you? But right. remember, have a long memory. Long game. At one point, long jo- game. Jo- yeah, yeah. <laughs> think of the long game. You need to think about the future point that you can punish Josh Gottheimer for 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 being such a little twit on this thing. <laughs> so, okay, what do we got next? All right, let's move on to uh, Afghanistan. So, you know, and I will kind of share my my personal anecdote, but I wanted to start with this morning consult Politico poll that came out just a few hours before we uh, got on the air. And the wording of it, I mean, nuts. So it says, do you believe the U.S. should still withdraw its military presence in Afghanistan if it means it creates an opening for Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups to establish operations in Afghanistan? Okay, that's the question. That's our, you know, our very neutral, not leaning question. And still, the results are 45% of people have said still withdraw. 40% of people said don't withdraw. I mean, that's nuts. I did, I did notice that someone, someone said, uh, who I, I think they're right, because there's, you know, kind of a, uh, someone else who's another political reporter, said that they actually answered, they, they also asked the more neutral 
Mm. Do you think we should withdraw? I think we should not. And then did this one to com- as a comparison, okay. you know, to kind of see what happens. But but the news stories are clearly running with with that one. And again, that that's like if it's really for a sort of a diagnostic purpose like that, that's interesting. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of see what the you know get get a sense of the contours of opinion. But um, you know, that just means it's the it's the news organization's fault rather than maybe the pollsters. Right. Because again, if you say kind of like, do you support the policy if it'll be a disaster? Well, okay, you're kind of, kind of, <laughs> you know, you're sort of, you're, 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 um, you know, sort of presupposing the the results. So obviously, you're going to. But as you say, it's pretty telling that even then, like, yes, even Al Qaeda, let's get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Right. I mean, which is again pretty telling. I mean, if I, I had a whole post on this, I mean, I think that this idea that our leaving there, even if it is terrible for people in Afghanistan, is going to lead to new terrorist attacks and Al-Qaeda setting up shop. I, I think that's almost completely bogus. And almost, you know, if it was really the case, if someone said to me like, okay, if we're doing this, you know, you're going to start having 9-11s again. Well, you know, that would make me reconsider. But again, that's just not, it's a complicated question. Part of it is that there's lots of places like there's lots of broken and failed states right now in the Middle East and Central Asia that groups like that can can you know set up shop in at least to an extent. We also have like you know whether or not you support those things or not. We have drones. We have special forces. We have tons of surveillance. We have tons of of. Um, scrutiny of the international banking system. There's all sorts of things that we did not have 20 years ago. Now, again, not everybody supports flying drone strikes into other countries all the time, but the reality is we do do that. Um, so whether or not it it advantages us as a country, makes us safer as a country to basically garrison Afghanistan forever is a, again, I, I think that that rationale is a very poor one and to some extent a, a dishonest one. But yeah. tell us about I was very interested to hear how this how this story has sort of intersected with your own life. Yeah, so uh, my boyfriend JJ did two tours in Afghanistan. Um, he's an army ranger and one of his interpreters reached out last week and said that he and his wife are in trouble and need help getting out of the country. So basically this guy, Javed, the interpreter, he uh, worked with the army and, you know, with JJ specifically for like eight months. And then he wanted to stay in Afghanistan. He was based in Jalalabad and he wanted to be a doctor. His whole thing was like he wanted to kind of stay and contribute his skills to the building of a new nation, um, which is not always what happens. You know, a lot of kind of interpreters and other people who helped out uh, the American military then want to go to America, you know, and there's um, a special visa program. But and or maybe specific- even that's that was sort of maybe the point all right. along. And there's okay. nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's totally. that's a lot of people want to come to the United States and, and more power to them. And this is a path. And right. But in this case, uh, Javed wanted to help the Americans because the Taliban had killed his father. So he thought it was kind of, you know, uh, a way to uh, avenge that or, or help the forces working against the Taliban. But he wanted to stay. So Now, was this, just to, to understand the full story, mm-hmm. is this 
something that happened before September 11th in the pre the sort of the pre US military phase or after we don't after. Uh, oh after okay got yep. it got it got it so um but the reason that's important is so now he he was able to get from Jalalabad to Kabul which was um you know, the part that we were very nervous about, because even though they're only about 90 miles apart and there is Jalalabad is like the sixth biggest city or something. So there is like a road that connects them. But, you know, the way JJ put it is it takes two guys with guns and a truck to set up a Taliban checkpoint, you know. So he's in Kabul and now we're kind of doing all the, the bureaucratic kind of paperwork to try to get him out, to try to get him one of those special visas. And the thing that's kind of boggling about it is you're, you're in this situation where he's received direct threats from people in the Taliban and they're keeping an eye on who goes to the airport and comes back and then they're going to find out what you're doing there. And, um, you know, so the sense of danger is very real. But meanwhile, you know, we're trying to fill out this, it's called an SIV, the special visa form, which used to, you had to work with the U.S. Armed Forces for two years to qualify. Then they just changed it to one year. Well, Javed only helped for eight months. So then that requires a different form called a P-2. And they're trying, you know, and JJ is trying to fill all this out. There, now, while is, there the, is, is the idea here that your, your partner is his role in this is basically vouching for him. Like, yes, I worked with him for these, these dates and stuff like that's, that's his, is that, that's his role here? I why mean, he's partially, needed? He, okay. he is doing that, but he's also filling out the forms for Javed because Javed doesn't speak English that well. So there's a pretty high right. language barrier. Right. Got it. Got um, it. Got it. So then, you know, and there's a, we have a very big time difference with Afghanistan. So it's also just, you know, getting him when he's online. There was right. some concern initially about the Taliban kind of monitoring various communications. So, right. you right. know, there was the should should we move to an encrypted app, that kind of thing. So and then it's just, you know, it's little stuff. It's like, think about whatever form you've ever filled out for anyone. It's, it's got stuff like, you know, what are your parents' names? Just, you know, it's it's right. so right. much so it's, stuff like So it's that. a mix of kind of, navigating the form filling out process mm -hmm. that we can all, uh, you, you know, uh, we all have some, you know, kind of whatever it is, you're, right. you're applying to college, you know, you're doing this, you're doing that, you know, forms where there's things, you know, kind of, you don't know exactly how to answer the question or you need data. So both that part, adding the language barrier being an additional part mm -hmm. of that. And the fact that, that, uh, your partner, uh, boyfriend, I, I mm -hmm. don't know what terms we're supposed to use these days, <laughs> um, and maybe other people also need to be able to vouch for this person to say, yes, I work for him. This person isn't like making it up. And I guess there's a whole other issue that um, it's not I know that one of the things that happened when they left the embassy is that you destroy records because you don't want, you know, you you don't want uh, the Taliban coming in to the former embassy and saying, oh, here's here's the right. database of every everyone who says go America. <laughs> you don't want, but when you destroy those things, sometimes there's issues that you don't have the records. And so it's a whole it's a whole right. thing. And in that way, it's really lucky that Javed kind of held on to all his records from when he did work with the army, because at this point, I mean, it was like seven years ago, eight years ago, it was a while, but he hung on to those things, which is mm -hmm. good. But now it's at the stage where, so, you know, we've got the application in, but then it's, you know, time, do, do you have to wait till it's processed? Is it the fact that it's pending? Is that good enough? So, I mean, now the task is like, how do we get him on a, a flight manifest? How do we get him right. out? So we're, 
you know, it's just such a hodgepodge of things. Like we're contacting basically every lawmaker's office who has said, you know, we'll help, we'll try to facilitate these requests. Some, you know, Andy Kim in New Jersey has set up like a whole kind of uh, special email address situation. So at this point, it's just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall to try to, you know, get him on to try to get with the hopes that people will kind of realize the situation that he's in, which is that he never really wanted to come to America before. So he didn't do this paperwork until he had to, he had to try to leave the country. And And that's all, presumably that's all a process that started in the last 10 days or two weeks. Exactly. And now you just got to hope that, you know, whoever's in charge of putting people on the plane will kind of see all this tapestry of stuff. And even the fact that he doesn't exactly qualify for the SIV or, you know, that he didn't have these forms done before will still kind of take into account the volatility and danger of the situation and get him on a plane to somewhere. Right, right, right. And, and, and I guess, um, at least the latest, what I, I mean, and, and I think for our, I, you know, this is, um, important for, for listeners to hear because certainly, um, you know, my general, my general thought has been, you know, in the collapse of governments, lots of people get hurt. It, it, it is, that is a reality. And uh, to a great extent, these things were, these, these very anguish-creating, terrible things were baked in to our doing this whole thing in the first place. And so everybody is responsible. Uh, on the other hand, this is real, right? And, and what, we're, what we're hearing from Kate, we have to imagine they're, you know, multiplied thousands and tens of thousands of times of all of all because even your point this is this is it used to be you had to work two years then it was one year but the person you're talking about didn't even work one year so you know that there's going to be a penumbra of who you know who exact how many people exactly get taken out and because you know one thing i think we've seen is that it'd be a week ago the people who were banging this drum the hardest were saying hey there's like a hundred thousand people and now Something like eighty or ninety thousand people have already been brought out of the country. Now, some of those are American citizens, a lot of those are third-party nationals, are certainly not all um, Afghans, but a lot of them are. Um, and so, at, obviously, you have to draw a line somewhere. And yet, we're hearing this individual story. Well, do you want to draw it over over this guy? Well, no, you know, kind of. It's so it's it's uh, it's uh, it's real, and it and it it. Um, it doesn't make me change my mind about kind of my take on this, but it's it is always important to con- to confront the reality of what you're talking about, and this is this is a reality. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't change my overall opinion either, and I think the trickiness with this is that when you're talking about people in these numbers, there's just going to be exceptions and different situations. All that being said. There should be no delay in processing these applications at this point. You know, like if if I have a criticism, it's that at least right now they should take I don't even know what office in the State Department handles this stuff, but they should like really beef up their operations, knowing what we know, which is that there is a deadline of August 31st. So for the next and that, week, and that deadline is even this has gotten some play in the last 24 hours, that that is the deadline for for the U.S. actually being out. They're not going to be, so they've got to get themselves out. So the, the actual deadline for evacuating people is 
it's sooner than August 31st because again, they need to right. get themselves out and take their take their gear out and their armaments and you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's it's uh, it's tight, and I, I don't I I'm I'm curious at numerous levels. You know, how is that stuff being processed now? Because to the extent that to the extent that you need to know that the person we're talking about here is who he says he is and did what he says he did, you, you kind of need to verify that at some level. On the other hand, obviously, I mean, I think we've, you know, sometimes people have a situation where they're, pa- you know, just in, uh, you know, vacation travel, you know, your passport's um is expired and you're, you know, you need to get it expedited and something like that, you know, just forms take time. But this is like a pretty serious situation. You need to kind of clearly you need to find a way that you can do the the baseline. Is this someone who actually worked for the US in some meaningful way? And if the answer is yes, you're like, okay, let's get the person on a plane and we'll figure out the details in Qatar or you know, or Uganda or wherever, you know, kind of wherever the transit points are. Um, one would hope it is certainly not, you know, there aren't like three people to the State Department who've got to process all these <laughs> things and it's still the same thing. It can't really be. I mean, I mentioned before we started recording this episode, I mentioned that um, what I have heard is that uh, the Trump people basically intentionally gutted the department that does this processing. Um, and that would not surprise me because they, they broke everything when they were there and they, they specifically wanted to break things that had to do with anybody who is not, you know, a, a, a white Christian coming to this country, basically. Uh, but you know, Joe Biden's president and he's been president for eight months. So, uh, I'm sure Trump broke a lot of stuff, but th- this is, you know, Evacuating Afghanistan is a pretty big thing. Um, so, th- and th- so this is really the only, the only, um, the only criticism of him that I think is 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 real, and that I can criticism of Biden that I can agree to is the idea that you're going to evacuate everybody before you leave the country is nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. That's not how it works. You can't you can't evacuate a country saying that the government's going to fall without guaranteeing it falls. Having said that, you could certainly get everyone's paperwork in order in advance. You know that that's that's doable. And so that was we'll find out what was what was done. But it's important to get the sort of the 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 real level um, story. And and um, I guess we'll see. I mean, my understand. It's funny that one thing that has there's been sort of contradictory word coming out about um, what the Taliban is doing now, what they're saying now. They, at some points, they seem to be saying, "Look, Americans can leave, and other, you know, foreigners can leave, but you can't take, you can't like strip our country bare. Basically, you can't like take everybody with you." And what they have said that has a certain logic to it is, "Look, you can't take all of our doctors and lawyers and like the whole kind of." educated class that, that we need to run the country. And th- there's, there's, some, there's some reality to that. Um, on the other hand, you know, they may have other reasons, though, for want, wanting everybody to stay, obviously. Um, on the other hand, it's, it's important for everybody to realize that the U.S. and the international community actually has a lot of leverage here. Because for the last 20 years, Afghanistan's major industry has been foreign aid, just 
pouring tons of money into the country. Now, a lot of that went to U.S. contractors. A lot of that went to the sort of the political class that kind of bought, you know, bought bought villas in in you know in Dubai and, and stuff like that. But still, a lot of money coming in. When the government fell, all that stopped, and basically the international banking system has been cut off. You know, they've been uh, cut off by the international banking system. So the my assumption is at least that. The Taliban wants to be able to govern something like a real state, which they didn't really have in the 90s. Now, do they want like it, you know, a great education system for for girls? Probably not. But you they do need they do need a they certainly need access to the international financial system and we control that. Mainly us, but also kind of everyone else. So we have we have a lot of leverage here, and it certainly would seem like, do they really want interpreters that work with the U.S. to stay? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of, there's a lot of individual, you know, been fighting on the other side. You want vengeance, right? There's some of that, but basically, these aren't, aren't people that the Taliban needs in the country or probably even wants in the country, um, and we clearly want them. So, I think there's probably... There should be a way to kind of have some sort of um, understanding, and 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 but they've said very different things. Again, sometimes saying like, "Hey, we don't want any more Afghan citizens leaving." Other times saying, "You can't just say anybody who wants to leave can leave because because obviously the whole kind of educated political class is going to leave." Uh, at other times, it's been well, people who have documents can leave. If you got one of these SIV SIV visas, maybe you can leave. So anyway. It's a it's a mess, and um, lots of people get hurt in 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 situations like this. And uh, you still have to make judgments about what the best thing is for the country to do. But you should always make judgments with a just a an exposure to an understanding of 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 what is happening. Right. Yeah. And I think we're just kind of clinging to the fact that they have gotten out. 80,000 people in a very short amount of time. So you can't know for sure everything's so chaotic and we don't know a lot of what's going on on the ground. But I mean, that to some degree suggests that they are kind of emphasizing taking more people over, you know, being persnickety about every piece of everybody's paperwork and everything like that. So yeah, I, I would assume that that, I mean, again, what certainly should be the the model is you you do a basic check is this someone who who worked for the US government in some meaningful way and if it's pretty clear that the answer to that is yes you you fly them out and if it you know if it turns out in some cases it wasn't true then you can bring some of them back or you know whatever it's 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 one hopes that is the standard being being applied right so if you're religious send up a prayer or if you're not, send some good vibes as we try to try to get Javed and his wife out. Okay, moving on to uh, Biden's approval numbers, which, as you kind of previewed at the beginning of the show, um, took a bit of a dip. The headlines were very interested in the fact that it was he had dipped under 50% for the first time. Um, and like you also said, some people kind of try to tie it to Afghanistan, even though it seems like it was trending downwards a bit, predating Afghanistan. 
And it does seem like kind of obvious to me that that's got to be in line with, you know, the Delta variant and the same emotion that honestly, I've myself have grappled with, especially this month and the last, which is just, you know, you, you kind of set emotional markers in your head where you're like, all right, I can get through this pandemic if it ends by spring, if it ends by summer. And then every one of those smile markers so far has been like, well, forget about that. <laughs> it's here to stay for longer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's for people who have very, um, and I mean this in the political science sense, articulate political views, i.e. You, you don't just like have a vague sense that you have specific policies, you have specific people you support, a party you support, all these kind of all these kind of things. Uh, you're really kind of plugged in. Then your political commitments are pretty durable in the face of almost anything. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if you're just kind of like vaguely paying attention, and suddenly everything sucks again, that's going to take a that's going to take a big that's. The, the the president's going to take a hit. That's just that's just reality. And I think what we're seeing here is uh, Biden's numbers have been weakening a bit, going back about a month. I think that is unquestionably tied to everything that has come with the Delta variant. Um, they have taken a more pronounced hit in the last week, and I think there's no question that is because of everything coming out of Afghanistan. Um, it's sort of you can't separate that from the press response, and we've said a lot about that. But again, whether it's the reality of the situation or how it's being portrayed by people who have sort of dirty hands over the policy is kind of besides the point. Those things, uh, those things are, are 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 taking a toll. They just are, and and I think it's important to again, if you are only kind of loosely engaged in politics, those things kind of flow together. Like, oh, you know, I thought he had COVID under control. And now it's like, haven't heard anything from Afghanistan for years and years and years. And suddenly everything is blowing up there too. And what's going on? And and I don't want more more terrorism. I mean, these things are taking a hit. And, and it, it's, it, is, it is worrisome to me, largely because I just don't want it to endanger this, the legislation moving through Congress right now. Uh, but it doesn't surprise me. And the question is just going to be how durable it is. Right. And I think... To some degree, I mean, it's way too early to tell from this, you know, how Biden's reelection is going to go. We're, we're too far away, but I don't think it's far enough away to start at least thinking about if this, you know, maybe he was on a, a honeymoon before. Maybe this is the where his true numbers are, which I mean, based on kind of recent presidents, Obama was between 45 and 50 for most of his presidency. So it wouldn't be unusual. But the point being, I think there's only been since World War II, only twice has the president's party gained house gained house seats in a midterm election. And that was Bill Clinton in 1998, George W. Bush in 2002, both of whom had a Gallup approval rating over 60% going into the midterm election. And to me, it's kind of like in how, based on how polarized our electorate is right now, I think there's nearly nothing Biden could do to get to 60%. I mean, unless maybe the pandemic was like eradicated in a day and I don't know, he gave free ice cream to every American. But like that is so high based on kind of what we're looking at now. And so if that's the, still the standard, and maybe it's changed, but if that is still the standard, to me, okay, the 
then you're op- you have a singular option no matter what. It's either you're going to lose Congress or do as much as you can while you still have it, or maybe doing lots of legislating will somehow give him the bump that he needs despite all the partisan headwinds. But you know, either way, the goal is the same. And I know that that is not how it's going to play out because we've, as we've seen these past two weeks, like Democrats are nearly eager to be running from the president when his approval rating, you know, takes, let's keep in mind, we're talking like a handful of point dip. It's not like a 20 point plummet. Yeah, it's about a three point, about a three point. Right. But it just seems to me so obvious. It's like, okay, whatever that means, there is one clear answer and people respond well to, you know, getting stuff done and then seeing improvements in their lives, which they, which Democrats can do with this giant sweeping reconciliation package. So, you know. And it's, it's, all, it's, also, it's also important to remember that you ideally, you're getting elected to do things and doing things, you get elected more, right? right. You get a sort of a, a, a virtuous cycle. But fundamentally, you get elected to do things. And to your point, there are a lot of factors that make it seem like Democrats may not be in this trifecta situation again for a while. So you do a lot of things. And the fact that it may also help politically is just an additional thing. On, on 1998 and 2002, the two times in, in at all recent history when a when, uh, party picked up seats, it's important to, I mean, one thing you can note is those are four, you know, four years apart. But the bigger thing is, in both cases, those approval ratings were driven by exceptional and largely exogenous factors. Bill Clinton's approval rating was so high in 1998, ironically, because of the Lewinsky scandal. Now, the economy was really kind of humming and everything, but, but the, his approval rating went up because people were like, dude, drop this Lewinsky scandal thing. Enough. We got it. He did this thing. Like, what were you thinking? Terrible. Let's move on. That pushed his number high. His 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 his. Now again, the economy was doing well. I think there was a general sense that he you know governed well. But again, his his approval rating was jacked up. I probably they were not 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 the right uh, uh, phrase to use. His approval rating was lifted as a sort of a sign to oppose the frenzy over the Lewinsky scandal. And the fact that it looked like the Republicans were going to impeach him, which they did after they lost seats, they were that committed. Now, for George Bush in 2002, he's still coming off 9-11. And the fact that he'd invaded Afghanistan and he was about to invade Iraq. Now, as, as some of us remember, his approval rating went, I think, up into the 90s after 9-11. Again, rally, you know, rally around the flag and, and countries in danger and that kind of stuff. So the point is, both in both of those cases, you're dealing with nothing the president like did to like kick ass. You'd argue in a sense that Bill Clinton, like he needed to have he needed to have more affairs with interns to keep his you know to keep his approval rating that high. But the the thing is, in, in neither case was that just because they were just awesome. There were these outside factors that were that were that were driving that. Now, I think that we are in such extraordinary times with the pandemic, with you know just everything that has happened that I think anything is possible next year. Frankly, I think it's possible for the for Democrats to pick up seats under various scenarios. But 
if Joe Biden's approval is like 45% next year, with all the other factors working against Democrats, it's going to be brutal. It's going to be brutal. It'll be really brutal. I guarantee you. Um, and that's just that's just life. So, you know, legislate while you can. Mm-hmm. Do what you can control and hope the rest kind of falls in line when it comes time to vote. Yep, absolutely. Okay. So, uh, let's wrap up with a question here from Mark. Um, he says... Um, I was thinking as Kate was venting about the moderate Democrats acting up over the reconciliation bill. Is it even moderate at this point to be wary about the amount of money going into addressing climate change? I can see where that was a pretty progressive position years ago, but today the circumstances have become extreme enough that to argue against infrastructure that will combat climate change almost seems to be a far right position now. It's it's a good point. And I think this is something that we, I think in different in different forms and different iterations have sort of wrestled with as an organization for many years. And that is, on the one hand, you want to identify people in ways that are substantively accurate. On the other hand, you don't want to come up with your own bespoke adjectives. So no one has any idea what you're talking about. And since the since the Democrats are the center left party, the people who are kind of towards the right of their caucus are going to be moderates because they're close to the center. Even if what they're saying is stupid, that's still kind of, again, you can kind of imagine it as an infographic in the same way that, 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 uh, the, 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 the much, the fewer Republicans who are kind of structurally in the same position are moderates, even if, are they moderate or, you know, what does that mean? So, um, I, you make an interesting point. I think it's a good point in some ways, but there is this structural reason why we identify Democrats in this position that way. And it has a logic that way. But an even greater logic is if we say, you know, if in our coverage we say, uh, you know, uh, Pelosi now squaring off against uh Josh Gottheimer and the feckless dickheads who who can't you know see the writing on the wall about what's happening. I mean you know sort of <laughs> we, we need we need to be using um, we need to be using descriptors that are familiar to people and can and can be aligned with other coverage so people know what we're talking about and we're talking about the same people that ABC News and the Washington Post is talking about when they're talking about the moderates. So I think. You make a good point, but I think on balance, it's it's the right way to identify people because r- really we're 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 in the business of clarity, and there are other ways that we can uh, signal maybe the substantively whether these count as moderate or centrist positions. And then to the kind of broader point that you know opposing any kind of climate change mitigation right now is seems like a, a very kind of far right position. I just wanted to add that there was a slew of polling kind of uh, late spring, early summer about climate change. And, you know, a a June Pew uh, survey found that, you know, 60% view climate change as a major threat to the well-being of the United States. A few months before, uh, Morning Consult found that 50% believes climate change poses a critical threat to the country's vital interests. Another June uh, Pew poll showed that more than half of Republicans and overwhelming shares of Democrats said they would favor a range of initiatives to reduce the impact of climate change. So 
there is also just the bare fact that I think as the, you know, tangible results of climate change start becoming so frequent and so dramatic that we are even now kind of in a place where it is increasingly mainstream for for both parties to want to address it in some way. And it I think with the general populace, that movement is happening at a greater rate than it's being reflected um, in the elected representative. So, I mean, I do think it's a position that people that any kind of Democrat who would oppose kind of mitigating climate change is at this point out of step with the Democratic electorate who overwhelmingly wants climate change to be addressed and mitigated. And I and I I agree with that 100%. I mean, it's sort of shocking, even with some of those numbers, like 55% right, think it's a right. big problem. Like, dude, what are you, are you not, <laughs> do you not have your eyes open? Like, yeah. what the hell? Um, but I would say this, and this is uh, a, a sort of a defense, probable defense of the Joe Manchin types, as much as they are the sort of the obstacle to an extent on the climate front, in all likelihood, Joe Manchin will be the 50th vote. I mean, kind of everybody's the 50th vote, but you get the idea on what will be a very big piece of climate legislation that will pass later this year. Now, maybe it would be better if not for him, but I think it, it it's important not to lose sight of that, that um, yes, not everybody is is on board to the extent that we would, that we would like, but even the people you see as the sort of the, you know, the fossil fuel sellouts, they're probably going to end up voting for the. I mean, I would say they're almost certainly going to end up voting for this thing. So it's important to kind of keep that in mind as we're, you know, as we're as we're talking about this stuff. Okay, is that it? Is that That's so? We it. we have to we have to we want to remind you we have uh, the 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 uh, entrance period for the great uh, Josh Marshall podcast theme song contest has come to an end. So we have all of your entries and we are digging into them now and evaluating them and uh, bringing to bear all of our musicological insight and wisdom to make this choice. So anyway, we got it. We're on the case and we will stay tuned. We will be uh, bringing you more news soon about the con contest uh, results. And thank you to everybody who submitted them. I mean, I was just, I, you know, as, as a, as a, as only a consumer of music, I was, I was so gratified and impressed mm -hmm. and like, wow, like, wow, this is, this is amazing stuff. Um, and so thank you. It's, it's, uh, we, we are, we are really enjoying the process, um, of, of, of going through them and just, and just thank you for, for, um, for stepping forward and, and, you know, honoring us with your, with your submissions. So we, yeah, we, we really appreciate it and, and more to come shortly on that front. Uh, let me remind you, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's cold brew ice coffee. If you're ready to get to give it a try, you can get 25% off your first order at Grady's with promo code TPM. That's Grady's with promo code TPM. All right. All See right. You next week. Later.
save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com/internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the US to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement, other restrictions apply.